This summer we've been in the book of Acts and we come to the end of our tour. Uh, Paul has made it through shipwreck, storm, and snakes uh, from, from the Isle of Malta and now is in Rome. And we find him in chapter 28 uh, in verse 23 uh, right there in the center of Caesar's empire. If you want to follow along, we, you can find this on the New Testament page 141. The men uh, agreed at a certain time, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where Paul was staying. And from morning till evening, he witnessed to them about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets, trying to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced. But others still did not believe. And as we move to verse 31, for two whole years, Paul stayed in the place that he had rented, welcoming all who came to him. He taught them about the king. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught them about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, for a lot of parents and children, uh, this marked uh, the first week of school. And I can imagine uh, discussions that were had uh, between parents and children on uh, the day when they were getting ready to be uh, dropped off or taken to the bus stop uh, for school. Because often when you're talking with your children, I know you want to save what's most important for last. And so uh, just as you uh, tell them goodbye, perhaps you tell them uh, not to forget something they have to do that afternoon or to bring a particular textbook home or to tell their teacher about some future appointment. Or maybe you tell them to, to have fun or maybe you tell them You love them. One of my favorite ones was a guy who would grow up to become a Nobel Prize winner. And he said when his mother dropped him off every day at school, she used to say to him, ask good questions. And then there are others of us who send our kids off or drop them off, not just for a day, but for a year as they go back to college. And what do you say when you won't see them as regularly? Perhaps you say to them, remember who you are. Or remember what you're there for, or study hard, or meet new people, or one that we had to use with one of ours, which is, remember you have a phone. And then what would you say if you were dropping them off for a lifetime? What would you say if you knew your patterns of communication and your presence with each other was never going to be the same again? What would you say then? We have a son that's getting married this coming Saturday night, and, and I, I've kind of thought, you know, what would I say to him in his last few moments as a single man? Hopefully I'll come up with something better than have a nice day. <laughs> what do you say when the way that you've related is going to change? And maybe you're not in the picture like you used to be. Well, if you're Jesus, this is what you say. Jesus had spent three years with his disciples in extremely close quarters. They'd done everything together. He had taught them, and then he died, but rose again. And in the 40 days between that and the time he, was ascend- he ascended, he, had, he still had some time with his disciples. In this last bit of time together, what is it you really want to get across to people you will not see physically ever again on this earth? According to the book of Acts, this is what he taught them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. 
The last thing he had to say, the most important thing he had to say was the kingdom of God. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Because if you look at the three years that Jesus had with the disciples, the kingdom of God was his main message. The Sermon on the Mount, all about the kingdom of God. And in fact, in case we missed it, in chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else will be added to you. Everything else makes sense. If you get the kingdom of God first, he says in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. We heard read this morning other passages that talked about Jesus going about teaching the kingdom of God. Most all the parables uh, in Matthew and other, um, uh, other places sometimes will begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. In Matthew and a couple other places in Luke, it will be the kingdom of God is like. That was his main subject. When he taught them to pray, he said, your kingdom come. The kingdom was the most important message that Jesus had to deliver. So it shouldn't surprise us. When after three missionary journeys and a long, uh, difficult trip that has taken him from Jerusalem to Rome at the end of his life, what's Paul doing? What's the most important thing he can say before he meets his end? And we're told the most important thing he can teach and talk about is the kingdom of God. It shouldn't surprise us. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul would do. Well, it may lead us to ask, what is this kingdom of God? It could be explained in great detail, but let me give you the shorthand this morning. When you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about God's activity uh, and activity where God's reign and will is advanced. In other words, where things start to be done the way God would have them be done, when that happens, the kingdom of God can be said to have come into effect. So his message was, spread my ways on earth, so it will be done the way I intend and the way, in fact, it already is done in heaven. Now, sometimes, don't get confused, when you're in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, instead of kingdom of God, Jesus will use the word kingdom of heaven. And there's a simple explanation. Many pious Jews did everything they could to avoid naming God's name. So in deference to them, often instead of God, you would find they would substitute the word heaven. But when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about something way up there or way out there in a long time in the future. He's talking about something that was happening right then, something God was doing, the kingdom of God. It was the most important thing he could say. He said it often. He even said it after his death when he had risen again. Which raises the question this morning, why for 2,000 years have we not talked about it? Why doesn't the church talk about what Jesus talked about? In an interesting new book, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, the book is called How God Became King, raises it this way. He said there's a phrase in leadership and management made popular by uh, British um, uh, consultant Charles Handy called the empty raincoat. Which is to say sometimes you get a shell of something but you miss the stuff in between. And he said, for Jesus, we sort of have an empty cloak. We have that he's born, and he died for us, and rose again, and nothing in between. Look at our Apostles' Creed. You could do it with me this morning, couldn't you? He was born of the Virgin Mary, and then he suffered under... Hold it. Wasn't that 33 years later? What happened in between? And what's in between, clearly, when you take the time to read and to study what's in between is teaching, preaching, and enacting 
the kingdom of God. As Wright says, I think quite accurately, we're missing the middle. Or he raises this question, have we forgotten what the gospel is all about? And we've made it. Jesus came. He died for you and rose again. End of story. And so we come up on the street and we may ask people in a well-meaning way, if you died tonight, do you know what would happen? Well, now that is an important question because, you know, the mortality rate remains pretty consistent. We'll probably die. But what about those that aren't dead yet? What about the world and, that they inhabit, the life that they live? How did we make death and life after death the main message of Jesus when the main message of Jesus was the kingdom of God, which is very much about life and the way you live it right now in the world that God has you living in? That's what's missing. That's what's in the middle. Somehow, we took all of Jesus' theology and we turned it into believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And we took all of Paul's teaching and theology and we turned it into justification by faith. Those are wonderful concepts and they are very true. But there's a cloak. And in between was a whole bunch of stuff about being a part of what God is doing on this planet and doing what God wants done on this planet. We made heaven the focus when, interestingly, Jesus made earth the focus. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth, he said, as it is in heaven. The idea was heaven was to come to earth, not everybody on earth trying to blow this popsicle stand and get to heaven. That was never the deal. The deal was always first about what's going on in the world that God loved so much that God sent God's one and only Son, that's what's going on there. That's the kingdom of God. Or to borrow from N.T. Wright on YouTube, he says this, Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Heaven is important, but it's not the world God intends to go on. The world God intends to be remade. And one day in Revelation 21 and 22, we see it remade. And earth and heaven become as one. There's a whole middle that we've been missing. Why is that middle important? Well, let me give you a shorthand on that one. The world we're living today is messed up. I mean, big time. The world is not functioning the way God intended, and it hasn't functioned that way ever since the third chapter of Genesis and Adam and Eve and the snake and relationships have been broken, the earth has been abused, people oppress one another, they worship themselves or they worship false gods. Things are just coming unwound. And God has always intended that God's people would be there to start to put the thing, with God's help, in God's power, back together. Any Jew, any Jew, liberal to the most orthodox, could tell you that part of their reason for being on this planet is to fix what is broken, to kun alam, to repair what needs to be fixed, to set the world back right. I've marched uh, through Israel enough times with Ray Vanderland that I can give you his lecture. His lecture goes to Exodus 19 and talks about uh, uh, that what the rabbis taught about the kingdom of God was uh, if you look at the Exodus, God came in great power with just the finger of God. So powerful is God that in, in God's finger, plagues were sent. The Red Sea is parted. 
And so God acted in a mighty way, and then people said, Wow, yay, God, you're God, we love that. And then God said in the third part, Okay, then I want you to do this. And gave them in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and then uh, summing up other commandments. And the deal wasn't like, oh, you love me? Well, then here, you need to, uh, you need to prove it uh, in, in a, in a master-servant way. Not so, it was more like, you want to see the world come back the way it was in the garden? You want to see my power? Do you want to see things happen on earth like they do in heaven? Do this. And actually, our obedience to God was the way that we helped bring God's will back to earth. So it would be as it is in heaven. And that was the message that rabbis had taught for centuries before Jesus rolled in and not only taught it, enacted it with his very life, death, and resurrection. Jesus broke into the scene and healed people to show that the kingdom had broken in and taught them about what that means. And perform miracles to show how the created order could be and was being restored. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. But interestingly, this king wants to have his rule extended by his subjects. And let's pretend for a moment, just to illustrate this, that I'm a dictator. Now, you don't trust me yet, so just give me a small area. I'm dictator of South Texas. And my headquarters is here in Lincoln Heights. And in the ancient days, in the days of, of, let's say, Noah or Abraham, how am I going to get what I want done in Terrell Hills, in Alamo Heights, in Windcrest, in Stone Oak, in Holotus, in Bernie, if it's possible? How am I going to get my will done in those places? Answer, I'm going to give you a signet ring. Or I'm going to give you a seal made of wax with my stamp. It is called an image. And when you have my image, you have my power. When you have my image, you have my authority. And every place you go with that image, you extend my reign and you carry out in Holotus, in Bernie, in Wincrest, what I want carried out and what I'm carrying out here in Lincoln Heights. That's how it works. Don't believe me? Let's go back to creation itself. Genesis 1:27 Male and female God created them in his own image stamped right there on the ring on the wax from the beginning it was intended that we would go around and do what God wanted done and when we do that that's called the kingdom of God that's called the kingdom of God that was the stuff between the cloak That's what the whole four Gospels are about. It's about what God did and is doing in Jesus and now does through the body of Jesus. We're making earth more like heaven rather than trying to get off earth into heaven as fast as we can. It makes a difference to you, to God, and to this world that we're still living on. Well, how would we do it? Real quick, first a warning. Warning is, it's not going to be easy. Do you think Caesar wanted to hear that somebody else was king? Do you think that came as good news to him? Do you think Herod liked it when he heard that a king was born in Bethlehem? Do you think he liked that very much? 
Believe me, the ones who are in power don't want to hear about somebody else being in power. So you need to understand just right off the bat, anytime you, need, you want to participate in making the world the place God wants it to be, you will be opposed. And if you're not opposed, you're not doing anything. You're really not. That may, may seem overstated. But I just want to tell you, the world is arranged to run by greed, self-interest, fear, anxiety, guilt. And when you start acting out of love for others and for God, they're going to have to crucify you. They're not going to know what to do with you. It will be difficult. So there's the warning. But that is your mission. And should you decide to accept it? Two things. Number one. You can't extend God's kingdom until you resign as boss of your own kingdom. This is from Dallas Willard. I think, he, I think he's right on the money. Until you say, I'm no longer boss of the universe. Until you say, I no longer call the shots in my own life, but somebody else is calling the shots in my own life. Until you resign your kingdom and join God's, you're not going to go any further. So it just starts by taking the crown off your head and putting the crown where it rightfully belongs. Second thing. Be aware, it's not going to be generally by some giant battle, some massive crusade. Usually the kingdom comes in very small acts. When a relationship in your family or among your friends needs to be reconciled and you finally take the step to reconcile it. When someone is lonely, you go to visit them. When someone is gossiped about it and you don't pass it along any further, you stop it there. When someone is hungry and you give them food. And hundreds of thousands of small acts, when you do that and you help the world function the way God intended it to function, you are participating in the kingdom of God. A myriad of small ways and typically not giant ways. King Herod, he liked big. Caesar, he liked big. Jesus, He liked small done with big, big hearts. He told this parable. He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. When it is sown in the ground, it is the smallest of seeds, but it comes up as the largest of shrubs. A seed of love, a seed of hope, a seed of attention, a seed of concern. Whenever you plant one of these, It will multiply and become bigger. I love what Mother Teresa said about this. She said, we do not do great things. We only do small things with great love. And when you do today, tomorrow, each day, small things with great love, it can be said that the kingdom of God has come.